My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast. Welcome back, everyone. It has been splendid to see the audience reaction to this, as it's very humbling as well for a show that is really only word of mouth being spread right now to see how big the audience is. And I'm not saying it's not like there are hundreds of listeners yet, but way more than I expected starting off. I'm extremely grateful for everything that everyone has done. I continue spreading the word, continue sharing the episodes when they come out. I'm extremely appreciative of that. Thank you all so very much. And I'm also very glad today that I'm actually able to record because I was beginning to wonder if I would be able to. As some of you may know, in Kentucky, we just had a major storm come through and that caused power to be lost uh, several times over where I'm at. And as a result, there were some people here at the dorm I'm at. Some of them had all the power once the power was restored the first time. Some of them had uh, maybe an outlet or two. That was me. I only had one outlet that worked. And some people had none at all. So thank God the one outlet that did work in this uh, dorm room was the one with my fridge and freezer were at. So I didn't have to move anything around. That would have been a total pain. So I'm extremely grateful for that to have happened. But that's it for that. Everything's fine now. The power just came back today for everything uh, in the entire dorm. So no issues there. We're done with that. Moving on. I'm probably going to have to bulk record another episode today for Chapter 3. And that's because next week I will be in Chicago visiting my brother and sister-in-law with my dad to help them out and just spend time with them as little uh, baby of indeterminate gender is, you know, just having a time of its life with us not knowing what it is, Connor and Paige. <laughs> and I can call them out because this is my podcast. They can start their own if they want to tell us what it actually is. I kid. But so I'm very grateful to have that chance to go and spend time with them next week. So obviously it'd be a little difficult to record while I'm on the road. So I'm probably just going to get that done later today or later this week. So you will have chapter three with you the week after this episode appears. So I think that's all it for housekeeping. Let us move on into the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be going from verses 1 to 3 at the very beginning. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own hometown. So, we're going to have a lot to unpack with just these three verses alone. This is typically the time. Excuse me, this is typically the round of verses you all would hear when you're at your Christmas services. We're told about you know the story of Mary and Joseph and the angels and baby Jesus being born. It's a truly magnificent time. And there's nothing wrong with doing that on Christmas, but... We're going to be doing it today because we can preach this whenever. And it's the story of the salvation of the entire world being brought through the sun. But to get there, we have to understand the context. Now, for those of you scholars out there or anyone interested, you know we don't know exactly when Jesus was born. So there is a huge gap of time, a 12-year period of time, which is way too much for my taste, but it's just how it is with history from 6 BC to 6 AD, 
you will have scholars saying he was born here. He was born here. So let us try and narrow that down as best as possible. And like, why do certain people believe one way? Why do some believe another? Let's try and get that. We're not going to go over everything today because we have an entire chapter to cover. But to help ground you in this study, I'm going to be doing that with you. So we start with Caesar Augustus. Who is he? He is the first emperor of Rome after the assassination of Julius Caesar, the civil war that happened between, you may also know Caesar Augustus by his name Octavian, uh, the civil war between him and Mark Antony, where he took control of Rome, started solidifying his power base there. And we get this moment of time while he's reigning emperor from 31 BC all the way to 1480. This period, as well as a little beyond this, is known as the Pax Romana. This is Latin for the Roman peace. It's a time, it's a bit of a misnomer, because it's not, there's no, no such thing as there not being a war or a conflict or what have you, or even rebellions. But what this is, is that once he establishes himself, he creates a Rome that does not have to suffer a massive civil war again, a massive rebellion within its ranks or massive border conflicts because they're still Rome. They're still going to be conquering. It's just what they do. It's just what they did. But within the empire itself, stability became key to where it was easier for them to keep accounts of how many people were there, how many of them needed to be taxed, where were they born, where were they going. So this helps set up how we are able to have this census in the first place because of what Caesar Augustus had done to bring stability to the empire. So we start next with Quirinius, or Quirinius, or however the heck you want to say it. Quirinius was made the governor of Syria in the year 6 AD. So this is why you will see some scholars say Jesus was born in 6 AD. You may notice, those of you who know something about Herod, the great, who, if you're reading your Matthew, is king at the time and wanting to kill the baby Jesus because he's a huge threat to his power. Uh, Herod is said to have died, originally most scholars would have said, at 4 BC. So you may notice, 4 BC is not 6 AD. So is Luke uh, giving us false information here? Is what's, what's going on with what is happening here? And the reason we know that one of the suggested times for Herod to have died in 4 BC is that Josephus, the great Jewish author and historian, was able to uh, tell us that he died around the time, a little after a lunar eclipse had occurred. And we know, based on other writings and based on how you know, the waning and waxing of the moon, that in 4 BC, this would have happened. So there's another one later on, but we'll get to that in a moment. So what are the reasons for this discrepancy? Well, here's a couple of things that could have happened. Number one, Luke and or Mary, they got their dates mixed up. So some of you already are up in arms, and I'm, I'm there with you. Let's Hold on a second. So let me just say, human error is possible. But in inspired scripture, can such a thing be true? I'm going to say no. I'm going to say Luke cannot get his facts wrong if he is presenting the gospel as the literal gospel truth to the world. But let us first remember something. 
just how providential it is that we have any records at all of what is happening in this time. The fact that we know who is emperor, the fact that we know that Quirinius was governor of Syria in 6 AD, the fact that Luke is getting his information to us wholesale right here so where we can go back in time and say, oh, this is happening here, this is happening here, this is where these things align, is a miracle of massive proportions because of how difficult it is for writing to survive for over 2,000 years to get to the point where we can actually understand what was written on it. And that's something we should all be immensely grateful for, is that we have the barest scraps of history that we do. We don't know everything that ever happened, and we never will, because that writing, the records get lost over time. They get smashed when a bunch of barbarians come in and raise a town. They get smashed and destroyed by rivals who want to write history in their own way and destroy what came before so that their ancestors look better or they look better. It's the unfortunate thing about the human condition is that we are going to rewrite history to make ourselves look better. However, we still have enough to help us figure out what's going on here. So I'm going to say Luke and Mary didn't get their dates picked up. They're not lying. But it also brings up another point someone would like to, to bring up is that Luke is trying to make something up to sound intelligent. And this is something that's levied against him as a whole, as a writer and historian, is that time after time, scholars will say, well, he said this, and that's not true. Uh, he mentioned that the skate was in this specific part, but it was actually here. I think that's an axe thing. But we found later on, archaeologically, that that was true. So I'm going to say, Luke is meticulous in everything he says. And if he's writing about a lie, do you really think it's smart for him to give specific moments in time where this could have occurred? Because all it's going to take in that time when he's writing this for someone to say, that didn't happen, I was there, because there's still eyewitnesses alive when Luke is writing this, and say, you're a liar, you're making this up. That's not credible, that's not good. And especially if he is making that up, then the entire book is something we can't trust. And if we can't trust this, it's worthless. It has no bearing on any of us. We can throw it out of the Bible. But Luke doesn't do it that way. So I'm going to bring up another point, and that Luke is correct, and we've just misinterpreted things. So let's go back to Herod. The remark about him dying after a lunar eclipse is from Josephus's writings. But he himself does not specify a year or time, stating that there was simply one before Herod's death. There are, in fact, two recorded lunar eclipses in the year 1 BC, which means Herod died here instead. Now, a counterpoint to this someone will bring up, and is a good one, is that Herod gave leadership over to his son, to his sons, and that they started reigning over his uh, part of the kingdom in around 4 BC, so which would suggest he died. However, as time has proven us over very different monarchies over the years, and emperors and what have you. I mean, even recently, I mean, this is a bit of a stretch, but we have two popes living right now, one who then took over for the other, while still being alive. We would have kings who would have their sons take command of their kingdoms so that they would get experience, so when the king was dead, they knew it was in good hands. And we could argue that very same thing for Herod. We can also say that since there were two lunar eclipses in 1 BC, either one of them could have been the moment when Herod died. Once again, we don't exactly have a specific date 
Herod died at this time, we know this precisely. It's the difficulty of looking back. The unfortunate thing about history is that the further away we get from events to happen, the harder it is to prove it. There's one more thing to remember Quirinius. The Greek word that is used for governor that you see most of the time translated in your Bibles is hegemoneo. And I don't think I pronounced that right, but whatever. (laughs) This is a catch-all general term for ruler. So it is possible that Quirinius wasn't the governor of Syria yet when Luke is discussing this particular census, but was acting in an official capacity for Rome so that he could enact this census and may have just been like the administrator of it and just the census alone and not therefore the governor of Syria, which we know from other documents that he does around the time of 6 AD become governor. While this would still be able to use this term to describe him as a ruler so that this still makes sense within scripture. Another little twist we get from our interpretation of the Greek language comes from the word protos which can either mean before or first, which if we choose the former, this means that this particular census could would have happened before Quirinius became governor of Syria, which is something we see backed up in Acts 5.37, which mentions a second census that Quirinius was responsible for that people and readers would have known about. So I'm reading this in Acts 5.37. This is from the revised Geneva translation, RGT. Why did I choose that one? Never read it before. Sounded like fun. (laughs) And this states, After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were scattered. Now, in context, this is the, I believe, the Sanhedrin, if I'm remembering correctly, or the Pharisees, uh, all discussing past rebellions and how they've all failed before, how false teachers have come up and they've all failed because they weren't the true Messiah. And they're saying, well, this Jesus is a false Messiah. His group will go away as well. But what's important for us at this time is that line in the days of the census. Luke would have said in the days of the same census as the one he's talking about here, because Luke and Acts are written by the same person. So he would have called back to this as a way to say, well, that happened at the same time, but he doesn't. These are two separate censuses that Quirinius was responsible for. This is further corroborated by Josephus as well, who places a rebellion that we talked about with Judas of Galilee in that person Acts at the same time, and even cites it as a reason for the creation of the Zealots, which we'll see later on in scripture being a group that Simon the Apostle was a former member of. Thus, when Luke brings it up, the earlier census, he's contrasting it with the more well-known one that caused so much strife in Israel. That way, if you were a reader at the time, we would know, okay, well, he had that one census before, but this is the one when bad things were happening. So any reader at the time would have known that's exactly what he meant. So with all this in mind, we can better trust that Jesus was born and that the Bible doesn't contradict itself. And there's something that I have missed, something that you're aware of that I'm not, please feel free to reach out. Uh, let nothing move you, uh, podcast.com, uh, excuse me, at gmail.com. I'm more than willing to hear it out. There's been plenty of written on this that I didn't get to cover in my research for this. Thanks again for losing power, Kentucky. It's just how it is. Thank you very much for listening. We'll continue on to verses four through seven. 
And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Unlike Matthew, we don't get a lot of Joseph's, uh, Joseph's, there's that list and that stutter coming out, Joseph's perspective in Luke. But we do know from other Gospels that he struggled immensely with what to do with Mary. I mean, especially at this time, like, he had the right to call for her to be killed. Uh, As far as the law saw it, she would have been seen as someone who had willingly gone out and had a child with someone else before marriage. Thankfully, we see that he is able to be convinced, thanks to the angel of the Lord, uh, you see that parallel in Matthew, to marry her and adopt Jesus as his son, even though by the law he was well within his rights to have her killed for supposed adultery. We, of course, know this to be false, given that there was no intercourse happening. However, how are you going to prove that in court? How have babies always been born? Why is there suddenly an exception to this? It's going to be very difficult to prove that. And that's why God allowed these angels to appear to both of them so that they knew neither of you is to blame here. Work together. This is God's son. We're going to get things done. In this particular verse, uh, for those of you unaware, is in Leviticus 20.10. This is the contemporary English version of CEV. If any of you men have sex with another man's wife, both you and that woman will be put to death. Now, we're probably going to be a very long time before we get to James, excuse me, not James, John. Remember that verse for something that happens there. And so that callback will take several years to get back to. But what we see is that Joseph didn't do any of this that most men would have done at the time, not believed their betrothed and gotten them murdered by the people thinking they were being righteous. And instead, he humbly submitted himself to God's authority. Now, notice how, at this moment, Mary is still being referred to as Joseph's betrothed. That's something that uh, some scholars take as a sign that they still weren't married yet, with some even suggesting that he wanted to wait until the baby to be born, and then after that he would marry her. And perhaps he was going to do this to get away from everyone, from the ridicule that the both of them no doubt would have suffered from their jeering neighbors. He wanted to take her along with him to his a hometown of Bethlehem, which is both of their hometowns, as we'll see later on in their genealogies. So that's something, a little food for thought there. Let us also note that this journey would have been about 80 miles long if we're there, if they're going straight, which, by the way, probably they didn't do because most Jewish people at the time would have gone around Samaria, go to the Jordan, go down, and then go back into Israel and to Judea, so that they could get to wherever they wanted to go. And the traditional route would have added far more time and far more miles for them to travel. And Mary is doing all of this as a young, soon-to-be mother without access to modern technology or medicine, and yet she still went to be with her betrothed. Just once again showcases her astounding faith in what God has told her to do and her love for her eventual husband or husband at the time, depending on how you interpret those verses. We will also note 
that there is a distinct lack of other children being with them, or at the very least being mentioned, which is something some denominations take as a sign that Jesus' brothers and sisters were not born yet. I've talked about this before. This is just one of the things that uh, our side of the camp would say, that you know they weren't born until after Joseph and Mary got married. Uh, others would say she remained a perpetual virgin her whole life. It's not the end of the world either way. I just think married couples are going to do what married couples do. And I see no evidence of Mary staying as a perpetual virgin, but I'm more than welcome to hearing other sides of the argument. So once again, reach out to us there in our email. And finally, through this moment, we see that the savior of the world, the savior of the world is born as a complete and utter nobody with no one to herald his birth at that moment in time or for the finest doctors and midwives to aid in his birth. Instead, one couple does so, helps deliver him in meager surroundings with no support or fanfare. Yet, this marks the single greatest moment in the history of the world that isn't the resurrection. The King Jesus comes to redeem us all as a baby in a situation far from fitting his station, yet did so anyways to show his humbleness and love for us and that he can sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus deserves better from this moment. He deserves to be brought into this world, cared for by the best of the best. And yet God doesn't allow that to happen because Jesus is not here as the conqueror. Jesus is here to be the one to introduce the gospel, not only to the Jews, but to the entire world. And what better way to do that than show us that he can submit himself in humbleness to help sympathize with our weaknesses and even empathize in some respects. Okay, moving on to verses 8 through 21. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that they had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is a remarkable moment in history for these, amongst a bunch of nobodies, three nobodies, who are able to see the presence of God and the, the heavenly hosts all calling out wonderful things about how the world is going to be forever changed by the birth of this child. But it begs the question, like, why does God and his, why do, why do they choose to appear to shepherds? Because as we will see, 
later on in our corresponding chapters in Matthew. When the wise men arrive, way later on, some people believe up to two years later perhaps, we see how kings would deal with Jesus. They're going to try to murder him because he's trying to take from them what is rightfully his. And no one ever wants that taken away from them. They want to be, we want to be our own rulers. So can't be born in front of the emperor, can't be born in front of the king. They're going to put him to death, as we see with the massacre of the innocents. Nor does he appear to the priests, for they will likewise put him to death. I mean, we're just going to have to read the rest of the Gospels to see how that happens. But that's exactly what happens. If they were to know who he was, he is a threat to their authority. So they have to get rid of him. So like I said, it also applies to the emperor. Like, he didn't go to the, the emperor of, I believe, was it the Han Dynasty that's active at this point in, in China? I, I don't know my Chinese history, that's why I shouldn't have said anything. <laughs> he didn't go to any of the Native American tribes. He didn't go to anywhere else except this lowly station in Bethlehem amongst his chosen people. And he did it in a way to show us all we are equally important to him. doesn't matter where we were born or where we come from. We are all the shepherds if we accept him in this moment as they did. But another reason he didn't appear to anyone else and went to them is because of the cultural stereotypes thrown at the shepherds. We see throughout uh, Jewish history, and not even just Jewish history, like the world, that shepherds are seen as worthless because they live the majority of their life out in the wilds. They avoided contact with people to the point of them all being seen as like this, these dirty, reclusive freaks. I mean, not to get crass, but that old joke about the Welsh and New Zealanders has been a joke that is not, it's not, it's not a recent joke. It has been done the entire time. It's like, oh, we have no one but animals for company. Yeah, I'll let you fill in the blanks there. That's how shepherds were seen, as less than, as sexual deviants, as losers who couldn't stay with everyone else because they weren't worthy of human contact. Yet God looks at that same very collective of freaks and chooses them above anyone else to display his tender love and mercy to by allowing them to be the sole witnesses that night of Jesus' birth besides his parents, to which they then glorify God for doing on their behalf. These people are in need of a doctor. And they get one. And that's exactly what God does. And it's so remarkable and lovely. And I just, I just want to spend a little time there, as much as I have, to help us understand the gloriousness of that moment. Now, moving on, we also see measure, uh, Mary treasuring these thoughts in her heart is yet another sign, just a little side here, that scholars take of her being the primary source for Luke and also showcases her great memory, which, thank God, there's someone around here again because it's not me. So, great job, Mary. We see in our final verse for this part uh, that we have collected reading that Jesus is then circumcised. Well, let's go ahead and discuss that. Does Jesus need to be circumcised? The answer is no, with a caveat. That caveat being, Jesus chose, even as a baby, to have this happen to him because he wanted his parents to follow the law. 
and he wanted to remove one more barrier from unbelieving hearts. He did so in accordance to the law so that they would have one less bullet to put in the chamber to deny who he was. It's like, oh, will you say you're the son of God? Well, we Jews, we all get circumcised and you have not. And how would they know that? Let's not question that. But to get rid of that, he is making sure that there's one less hurdle for him to jump over. One less thing for people to say, to talk about him behind his back. Because guess what? They're already going to do it. Don't give people more ammo. And I say that to all of us as an example here. Like, we need to live our lives to where no one around us can say, I hate them because of this sin. If people have to hate us, it should be because we are preaching the word of Jesus Christ. And that is the only thing they can say against us. And guess what? That was the only thing people had to say against Jesus. They had to make things up just so they could get rid of him to the point where he would eventually be murdered for doing exactly what he was supposed to be doing. So there's something to be mindful of there. But also keeping on the topic of circumcision. Let's also look to Paul, who will later on in Acts 16 circumcise Timothy to remove that barrier of Timothy's witness so he can speak to the Jews who would already be hateful due to his mixed heritage. Now, Timothy, we'll see eventually when we get to Acts forever from now, is the uh, end result of a relationship between, uh, I believe it's a Jewish mother and Greek father, if I'm remembering correctly. And already people are going to hate him because of mixed heritage, because, well, you think racism is a new thing? It's not. It's been all across time and space. As far as humans have been able to other another person, that's just what it is. So what we see Paul do in that moment is remove one barrier, one hurdle, so that Timothy's witness can be that much stronger. Now, I'm not saying, if any of you out there believe in Christ and you're uncircumcised, you don't have to go out into the doctors right now. I'm saying there are specific reasons for them to do it. That is for you to decide. A circumcision was a sign of the Jewish covenant between God and his people that be set apart from everyone else. And there are Christians who choose to do it, and there are Christians who choose not to do it. Either way, it's fine. It's not a a huge matter of spiritual awareness and salvation that you need to have this done in order to get into the kingdom of heaven. It's okay. Moving on from that lovely topic, we're going to be going to verses 22 all the way to 38. And when a time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to resent him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And that is from Exodus uh, 13.9, if I'm remembering correctly. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see, oh, that was a huge gap there, uh, see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And when he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles 
and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will also pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she came, until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So, well, a lot more there to unpack. We see Mary and Joseph at the very start of these verses continuing to follow the law when it comes to raising their son, showing their faith to the law and how they were supposed to be following it, and to God as well, as Jesus had not come to fulfill all the law yet, as in verbally saying so. It also shows their economic status, as the offering of a pair of two turtle doves or two pigeons was reserved for the poor among the people who could not afford to have a lamb sacrificed. And this is a provision God brings all the way back in the scripture to account for people who wouldn't be rich enough to cover their own sin. And we'll see later on how uh, money handlers deal with this to price gouge the people. But for right now, we see their humbleness in this moment. Joseph does not seem to be a man of means. As a carpenter, he's probably going to be very useful to the people around him, but it's not a money-making venture he's in right now. And he's got a family to support. And it's even worse, but he still is faithful to the call to go before the temple and have his sins covered by the sacrifice of these birds. Now, moving on to Simeon, we know next to nothing about him, save for the fact that he is far more devout and obedient than his fellows, and that God has gifted him with the gift of prophecy that speaks to Mary's eventual temporary sorrow at Jesus' death on the cross, that being the sword that he mentioned that will pierce through her soul. This is remarkable because, once again, we see that prophecy, the gifts of God are slowly coming back into the forefront of the people of Israel to where they thought that it would never occur again. And it's truly a wondrous thing to see his faithfulness as well, to the point where God rewards that faith with the ability to see the child, Jesus, who is going to save the entire world. He has lived his entire life this moment, and Anna as well, when we get to her. And God does not forget them based on their age. We often think that God is slow, and he seems slow to us because we want things right now. That's how we're wired as people. I want results. Do it right now. But that's not how he works. Not all the time. It took years, over 80 years for the both of them, it seems, if I'm remembering my numbers correctly, for them to get the promise that had already been foretold in Scripture of Jesus coming to redeem the world. And they rejoice. Let's move on to Anna. We see also her gift is prophecy. 
which shows and some people, they just love to say this and they're completely wrong. Prophecy is not restricted to a man. It's not restricted to women. It can be given to either based on what God does to bring further glory to himself. This also may give some evidence to contradict what I said earlier, that there may have been some prophets since she was known as one since the coming of Malachi, unless she didn't possess this gift until this moment in time, kind of like what happened to Zechariah and Simeon. So who knows? I just bring it up to say like something I've said before may have been wrong and I'm mad enough to say that. So let's see. Uh, that's up to scholars to decide, really. Also, it helps bring up the fact, this is a very minor thing for discussion here, but a very important thing as far as something that will happen later on in the Bible. Bring us to the fact that the tribes of Judah, Benjamin, Simeon, and Levi were not the only surviving tribes of Israel, as some would believe. They, probably some of you have heard of the missing tribes, the missing ten tribes of Israel. Some of you may know that as a result of Israel and Judah splitting up to two separate nations, ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south, technically four tribes in the south with Simeon and Levi. Simeon didn't really have a land. It became absorbed into Judah. And Levi was supposed to be the priest that served every tribe, so there would have been some in Benjamin and Judah at that time. But the Assyrians come in. They destroy Israel, take away those ten tribes into captivity up north. And for the most part, we lose them the history, save for those who eventually would come back in later exiles. And there's lots of people who believe that they went elsewhere. You'll you'll have people say, well, they went to Africa, you know, or they went up to Russia. Uh, some even say Japan. And, uh, and some people even say the Americas. But at the end of the day, God has brought the people he wanted to back here to the point that later on in Scripture, in Revelation 7, we see not only did these tribes survive, but there will be enough of these of a remnant for at least 12,000 apiece from each tribe to have faith in God and be his witnesses during the time of the tribulation. And Revelation is one of those books where it's immense all over the place. You don't know what's going on all the time. Anyone who says they do, run away. As much as I've studied that book, it's one of my favorites. I don't understand it all, and I never will. But I do know that God promised Israel that he would be looking after him. This is a perfect way of showing that, that even at the end of days, they will come to faith in him. But it also shows this whole thing is that God never forgets. Oh, I already said that. <laughs> uh, I read it, got to my notes a little quicker than I thought. Oh, well, who cares? I'm human. We'll move on to the final parts of the chapter, starting in verse 39, going all the way to verse 52. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, and then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. 
And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. A question that is often brought up here, and it's a very good question, is that how can a Jesus already filled with wisdom increase in wisdom if he already knows everything? I mean, did that break anyone else's brain, hearing that out loud? How can he be filled with something and yet grow with it? Well, simply put, he can't. But this is one of many times in the Bible when human-like attributes are given to a member of the Trinity to help us understand them. Also, Jesus can grow in his stature and show how wise he truly is by using the new talents that he would, over time, just like he would naturally develop like any child was the same way. I mean, just think about it. Jesus is not shown speaking from birth. Maybe he did, it's not told to us. But for an illustration here, Jesus does not speak from birth. So he would have acted like any other baby would. He would have cried. He would have bellowed, and eventually along the way would have babbled words and said something. But when he grew older and was thus more capable of having uh, and showcasing his speech, Jesus would actually be able to verbalize his already present full wisdom and intelligence, allowing those around him to marvel at how could this be. Like, there are genius babies out there, and some not-so-genius babies, and we love them both. You don't expect a four-year-old child to be able to speak several languages, but there have been several we've recorded who are able to do so. It's hard enough to learn one language. And at that age, learning more than one, more than two, and becoming a polyglot is amazing. And it's how Jesus was able to do this, not that he was showing other languages, but that he was able to speak with such wisdom and reverence to the scriptures that people were paying attention to him. Also, the, we, uh, the Greek word we see here is prokopto, which can mean to literally or figuratively move forward or advance. It is a human attempt at putting into words what we don't have the words to say, otherwise known as anthropomorphism. That's, like I said earlier, that's the ability of humans to try and ascribe certain words to God or angels or the Trinity, more than likely members of the Trinity than angels to help us try and understand what's going on because it's something so far beyond us. It's like Moses only seeing the back of God uh, while he's up at Sinai or describing God's hand and his feet. Like, uh, were they literally there? Or that's like, that's the only way we could put into the words to how we could describe this certain thing happening. So next up, we also have the first recorded words of Jesus in scripture. Obviously he spoke before this, but we don't have that. We don't have it written down. These are easily important for revealing to us several things. So at 12 years old at this time, Jesus would have been expected to follow in Joseph's path as a carpenter, but his true calling is to work for the Father and doing all that he has commanded. Although one day, Jesus will still honor his earthly father by working with him as a carpenter. This is important extremely important because we see Jesus's goal is not to become a carpenter. Jesus's goal is to preach to the world and through and then die on a cross, resurrect 
and be the salvation of the world. Becoming a carpenter is something he's going to still do, though, because he is honoring his earthly father while also honoring his heavenly father so that both are shown importance, but one is shown as more important to the other. We also see in this moment just how woefully unqualified all the priests are in their positions. If all it took is for a 12-year-old child to demolish their understanding of scripture. Now, we don't know exactly what Jesus was saying, but for those of you who don't know, what the Pharisees and Sadducees would do is that they would spend time memorizing scripture. At a certain age, if you didn't memorize it totally, you were kicked out, which is why I never could have been a Pharisee, because my memory is trash. (laughs) But These people, therefore, knew the Bible better than anyone else because they could recite the specific verses and uh, books through memory like that, just instantly. And yet they were stumped in the presence of the person they thought they were worshiping. It's just marvelous to see how God makes fools of people who think they're wise. What this also shows us is that Joseph and Mary, at this time, they didn't fully understand what their son was there to do if they were unable to figure out why he acted like he acted. I mean, if they knew more about, if they actually understood what Jesus' role in this world was going to be, they would go, oh, well, of course he's there. He should be with the priests, like, discussing what God desires. Like, that makes perfect sense. But instead, excuse me, they, they don't know. And we also see, too, like some people call them bad parents. Like, look, when you were traveling back in the day, you traveled with a group of people uh, for the most part. And you know, kids got lost along the way. And you just assume, well, my family member over there was taking care of them. Or my acquaintance over here is taking care of them. So they're not bad parents. Don't, don't stress about that. It could have been extremely easy for them, especially if they have younger children at this time, for them to lose sight of the oldest one while they're looking after the other ones. So not against Mary and Joseph there. And the final thing here is it also tells us that despite this, Jesus submitted to their authority, despite being the very same God who had created them in the first place, which just shows how deeply serious God takes his command to honor our parents. And I said before, I am very blessed with the parents I've had. I look, there have been several people in my life, I've seen their family situations, and it breaks my heart. And it took me a long time to be able to understand how that was even possible after having been raised by two people uh, who were able to you know, love me unconditionally and able to help raise me correctly. And then see other people who don't have that. This is why we're called to honor our parents so that when the next generation comes, they're doing the exact same thing. Like, if our parents honored their parents, we should honor our parents, so on and so forth. That's what it should be. And Jesus, as an example, shows us this, despite the fact that he could rightly uh, destroy them in a blink of an eye. But he doesn't. Because that's not what he's there to do, number one. But number two, because he loves them. And he loves the law that God has made, his perfect moral law. So he's going to honor them instead. So that's it. For chapter two, thank you all again for listening. 
please do us a favor. Keep sharing this across the different platforms on Facebook and Twitter and the like. Very grateful to all of that for happening. Also as well, please, if you have the chance, just leave us a five-star review. It really helps uh, people to find us on whatever podcasting platform you're using. I'm extremely grateful, once again, for everything. I probably said it one too many times, but I'm going to say it again. I am extremely grateful for you listening to this, for being there and asking questions and sending out emails and what have you. Once again, the email is letnothingmoveyoupodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, just remember, God loves you. We're going to get through this.